a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Oda Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking from Vienna. Today, we're approaching the second anniversary of ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan that ended a six-week war in 2020. And we wanted to take this opportunity to discuss just where things stand two years later between these two countries. The current conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan has its roots in the late 1980s with the breakup of the Soviet Union and largely revolves around the breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh as well as seven adjacent territories which were captured by Armenian forces during the First Karabakh War that lasted until 1994. Another major round of fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan in late 2020 resulted in regions adjacent to Nagorno-Karabakh and parts of the Brekari region itself returning back to Baku's control. Although both sides signed a Moscow-brokered ceasefire in November 2020, this hasn't prevented regular flare-ups of armed confrontations, the deadliest of which took place this September, with nearly 300 deaths on both sides. Since then, armed violence seems to have again largely subsided and both sides have announced that they are coming closer to a peace agreement. However, with Armenia's most crucial ally, Russia, being tied up with its war in Ukraine and European countries becoming more dependent on Azerbaijani energy exports, the cards seem to be increasingly stacked against Yerevan in its peace negotiations with Baku. To talk about all of this, we are really thrilled to welcome uh, back Alessia Vartanian and Zawar Sharia of Crisis Group's foremost experts on the South Caucasus region. Alessia is based in Tbilisi. She has well over a decade of experience in covering this conflict and also extensive experience on the issue of uh, breakaway regions in general, uh, not just Nagorno-Karabakh, but also Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia. She um, spoke to us on War and Peace on the first anniversary of the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, ceasefire about a year ago. Uh, Zawar is based in Baku and has also over, well over a decade of experience. He has worked in think tanks and academia, writing about security and conflict resolution, foreign policy issues within the broader South Caucasus region. So welcome, really glad to have you on War and Peace, Zawar and Adesa. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be with you. We've had... Um, over the two years since the ceasefire was signed, uh, fighting flare up repeatedly. So what would you say, um, Zawar, would you say the ceasefire uh, has been successful, unsuccessful? What's your overall assessment, Zawar? 
I think we see uh, since the 2020 war, we see more violence in and around around the Nagorno-Karabakh. At the same time, international border of Azerbaijan and Armenia, and we see also the combatant and the non-combatant uh, the casualties. So, according to our uh, Nagorno-Karabakh visual explainer, so there are more than 1,000 of the overall casualties between Azerbaijan and Armenia. It includes also the mine explosion. It includes also this uh, uh, the deaths of the soldiers and the wounded soldiers. So we saw the last, uh, at least the last uh, six or seven months, much more violence. So, Alessa, we have Azerbaijan and Armenia, but we have Russia that brokered the ceasefire. We have the European Union that has been increasingly engaged in trying to bring Baku and Yerevan to the negotiating table. And every once in a while, the United States still gets involved. Uh, France, I mean, once upon a time, uh, France, uh, the United States and Russia were the three co-chair countries of the Minsk Group, which was where any settlement talks were meant to take place. All of these outside powers, outside stakeholders, uh, how do they see themselves? I think the main uh, um, goal that all of them have, no matter whether we are discussing Russia or the West, uh, is uh, to avoid the war uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, for Russia, which is mainly because it does not want to disperse its resources, no matter whether with resources would be diplomatic or whether we are discussing uh, potential military activities from the Russian side. And for the West, it's more about avoiding the war that traditionally leads to more Russian uh, presence on the ground. Uh, in the past, we had some uh, military operations or even the war uh, that you mentioned in 2020. And all of them proved to be uh, something that led to more Russian presence. Um, so for them, uh, for the West, it's uh, trying to avoid uh, the war that can lead to even less sovereignty, first of all, of Armenia, but also for Azerbaijan. I'd like to come now to the clashes in September, um, which were among the deadliest round of border clashes that we've seen since the end of the 2020 war. I was in uh, meetings individually with the foreign ministers of Azerbaijan and Armenia. And both of them said that the outbreak of conflict in, in September was a direct result of the the other side. So I'd be interested to get an idea of what actually caused the outbreak of the recent clashes and what was the outcome militarily and politically. You know that before we saw also the violence in March and also in August, uh, but the, the March and August clashes happened in and around Nagorno-Karabakh and within the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. Because of this, international community did not speak out in any meaningful sense. However, in September, a large ceasefire breakdown happened where Azerbaijan forces moved deeper into Armenian-held position along the international borders. Therefore, this was condemned as a violation of Armenian territorial integrity, and it also damaged Azerbaijan image and perception of its commitment to the respect to territorial integrity, something Baku has upheld as a key principle for the past three decades. And therefore, uh, I, I see the September clashes is also not a, a supportive act for the peaceful resolution of the conflict and also reaching out any sustainable uh, solution for the conflict. But at the same time, we saw that after September was not uh, worked uh, as Baku planned. But uh, militarily, I think at least those original government officials are saying that they are right now securing the, some of the uh, mountain regions and uh, and uh, this is uh, going to reduce uh, any kind of the uh, violation of the ceasefire. So the 
this is the uh, how Baku is uh, arguing about this uh, September clashes. However, we saw that after September, the EU meeting in uh, the Prague actually uh, bring some the results, and uh, so still we have a, right now we have a relative stability after the September clashes. Thanks, Sawil. And Alessi, I'd be interested to get your take on this as well, on those September clashes. You know, Alisa, we at Crisis Group, we work with our legs. Uh, I was uh, at the area where the clashes took place and um, about a couple of weeks ago uh, when I was in Armenia. And it was clear that uh, that was a large-scale operation that is not something that can happen occasionally, so that uh, should have been planned. And uh, despite uh, big casualties on the Azerbaijani side, the Azerbaijani troops are now in a very um, important position. In some places, uh, they are absolutely controlling the mountainous heights, but in uh, some other areas, like, for example, near the town of Jermuk, uh, they are sitting on the mountain, and let's say something happens, there is another um, pretext for Azerbaijan to start another operation. When I spoke to some uh, military uh, experts, both in Armenia, but also those uh, who are trained in the West, uh, I mean, they are foreign uh, experts who work for a different Western government. Um, they basically say that in case of a resumed violence, it will take Azerbaijan just a couple of days probably to take over the main road along the gorge that uh, will effectively cut uh, uh, the south of Armenia from the rest of the country. So in a way, I mean, that clashes, uh, they were not just about some military gains, uh, which is also, in a way, creating a Damoclos sword uh, over Yerevan, so that uh, potentially when there are peace talks and uh, Baku does not find something satisfactory, you know, as I always said, sometimes that we see Baku using this tactic, moving forward the things through force. Um, but I also want to highlight something. I mean, when I spoke to some foreign diplomats, it was clear there is a shift in the moods. Um, for years, I have been hearing people saying uh, and re- referencing the conflict of 30 years between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, um, I see more and more uh, Western diplomats speaking openly and clearly that uh, this is something different. We see a new pattern in this years-long confrontation when Azerbaijan has uh, an upper hand uh, uh, with its armed forces and Armenia is absolutely not able to resist. Um, and Azerbaijan is making use of this period when Armenia's key ally, Russia, is distracted with the war in Ukraine to, to get uh, at least militarily some of the mountings so that potentially if they have a chance in terms of like m- moving forward, but on the other hand, uh, it can also um, add a pressure on Armenia uh, in some of the political processes between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And this monitoring mission to be carried out by um, the European Union on the Armenian side of the of the border. Can you describe this mission uh, for us, um, just really in a nutshell? So this is a, a mission of around 40 people. Um, they are mainly coming uh, from the place where I am, uh, from, from Georgia. Uh, they are part of the EU monitoring mission that has been doing with observation along the lines of separation of Abkhazia and South Ossetia for 14 years. And uh, I should say that in Georgia, they were uh, very successful. Despite uh, the fact that they don't have an access to the breakover regions, uh, they were still able to monitor the situation 
situation. The other thing why the EU MEM was successful, and I understand that this is something that we are potentially hopefully to see is uh, the EU MEM has been facilitating the contacts uh, between the sides uh, on different sides. So they would bring people who are relevant uh, for the security on the ground for regular conversations. And on the other hand, uh, the EU mission would facilitate so-called hotline uh, uh, between the sides so that if there is uh, something going on or if they see some problems, they can uh, give a call to other side or to discuss instead of starting firing. Um, in, in the context of Armenia and Azerbaijan, unfortunately, we have never had uh, a proper mediator based on the ground. The peacekeeping force uh, uh, that is now based in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, since the 2020 war, it, it is responsible for observation. Uh, but unfortunately, in terms of the facilitating the contacts, uh, it is quite limited. So it, it remains to, to be seen whether uh, Azerbaijan ag- agrees to cooperate uh, for for a format like this. Sarul, how is the mission viewed from Baku? And do you think that its implementation will decrease the likelihood of a renewed outbreak of clashes? I think this is this is the this is the goal of this mission to create an environment for conducting for the peace talks. So how it was seen in Baku uh, is that uh, the Baku sees this as an ad hoc mission. So, and Baku is ready to cooperate in ad hoc basis. So they don't want to see a presence of the EU mission in Azerbaijan side of the territories. We haven't seen any uh, negative reaction to EU mission, but we see, uh, we, we could see much more negative reaction if, if they will be permanent in the region. From the decades and it will go to decades. There will be no end, you know. So the elephant uh, in the room, as it were, is the war in Ukraine. And one of the things that you hear is that the war has revealed the limits of Russian power, uh, that Russia's uh, inability to uh, be successful militarily in Ukraine uh, has demonstrated that the Russian armed forces aren't as capable as Russia uh, believed them to be and as everybody else believed them to be. Um, it has also arguably meant that Armenia and Azerbaijan look at Russia and don't see it as the power broker that they might have before. So, um, Alessia, is uh, Russia losing its legitimacy in the region? Has it uh, changed relationships between Moscow and Yerevan? Um I think we had uh, periods like this uh, in the past as well. At, at this very moment, I agree with your analysis. We, we basically have Russia uh, that that is not seen um, as a mediator or also as a protector, I mean, in case of Armenia, right? Uh, but I would not expect this to be like this for forever. You know, we had the situations when Russia, for example, in the 90s was weak, uh, but it still was able then to come back uh, in in a form of kind of, you know, uh, going between the sides. We now see uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan extensively communicating with the European Union, with the US, with France uh, on their problems. And there is a good reason for that. 
first uh, Baku wants to speak to the European Union, uh, and then uh, in that sense, Armenia has uh, little choice but to follow uh, in case it wants to sustain um, stability on the ground. But I think for um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, it is uh, at least in the beginning, you know, when uh, when the war in Ukraine was just starting, uh, and it was uh, not clear how it, it uh, would be developing. I think for Armenia and Azerbaijan, it was still the story about uh, keeping an alternative because no one could understand uh, how long it would last, whether Russia would succeed, what kind of Russia we would get, and and when. Um, so in a way, for them, going to the West uh, and discussing uh, their problem over Nagorno-Karabakh, it, it was also an opportunity to reach out to the West in case uh, there are some developments <laughs> um, as a consequence of the Ukraine war. Um, it, it has been changing. It very much reflects the situation on the ground in, in Ukraine. We we saw Azerbaijan and Armenia agreeing on certain things um, in Brussels, uh, for example, on the transportation roads. The moment uh, Russia started losing uh, in Ukraine, we now see Azerbaijan l- less, uh, I mean, <laughs> limited eagerness uh, to go for some of the compromise and rather looking for uh, to get uh, not just what is agreed, but maybe even more than that. So it kind of demonstrates that what is happening in Ukraine, it has an immediate impact, uh, but also in a bigger terms of the future uh, of the South Caucasus. Zawo, I'd be interested to get your take on this as well. There's a suggestion that Baku you know, might have felt emboldened, might feel emboldened at the moment by the fact that um, Russia is tied up with the Ukraine war and also that its putative strength is not as, is not as great as it, as it was supposed to have been. So I'd be interested to know from you, has this, um, given Baku an, an edge? Um, do they, has this encouraged Baku to be more forceful, to perhaps take military positions as a result of the fact that, that Russia is, is no longer perhaps seen as strong, to be as strong as it was. This is this is a great question, um, uh, and this is the question that everyone is asking. Uh, so I I would like to go back to 2020 or even earlier that uh, to answer this uh, the question properly, because I mean in Azerbaijani perception after first Karabakh war, Russia was one of the mediators, and but it acted first because the resource at its disposal allowed it to. A core question that time was that what price should we pay for Russia to support the return of the regions around Nagorno-Karabakh? And uh, we saw that in the Second Karabakh War, what price paid? So, and after 2020, the, the same question asked that uh, what price we should pay for the Russia in order to get the Russian troops out of Azerbaijan. So, the strategic agreement signed in Russia in February 2020 was planned for and to uh, to get the Russian loyalty. Uh, but, uh, but with the uh, invasion of the Ukraine by Russia, the attitude is uh, is changing uh, rapidly in the region and in, in Azerbaijan. So, uh, and this is the something that the Ukrainian war. As always, and did not include in its calculations. Uh, so, uh, so two things uh, uh, that, first of all, as always, in importance is increasing because of gas export potential to Europe. 
But uh, also the Russia, as always, the importance for Russia is also increasing. Uh, and uh, it should be seen more as an opportunity for Israelite Russia to access Iran via Azerbaijan land routes and in the same way to access the Turkish markets through Azerbaijan via Armenia. Therefore, Russia is more interested in creating transport corridor between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, so all creates a new opportunity for Azerbaijan to open a dialogue with Russia on new terms, which will clarify the question of the price should be paid to Russia, which we talk, uh, which I talked uh, about it earlier. So, uh, but I, I think uh, I'm a little bit disagree that Russia is weakened and therefore does not react uh, to developments in the region. But I think the Russia interests in the region also are changing. So uh, it's trying to find a common language with Azerbaijan on new terms. This is how. Uh, it, it is seen in Azerbaijan. And also, we, we must uh, also take into account the Turkish factor here. Okay, so that's all very, I mean, it's all a bit vague, right? Um, concretely, um, how, how do you see things changing? How do people in Baku see things changing? What, what do they expect? So I think uh, the first, the concrete thing is that uh, they are expecting right now that Russia will be zero uh, by 2025. So that's why they're talking about that Russia will change its uh, concept of security in the region. This is the first first thing. I think the second thing is that uh, they would like to see the finalization of peace agreement with Armenia, which uh, the people in Baku believes that this is going to solve the main many issues between the two sides. And uh, you know that before the Ukrainian war, the peace uh, discussion or peace agreement wasn't on the table. Uh, so, uh, so the third is, uh, issue is that, uh, related to the Turkey is that, uh, Turkish importance is increasing in the, in the, uh, in the West and also for Russia. So that's why, uh, the, there, there is a belief that Russia will not abandon, uh, so Russia will be much more cooperative as always because of the Turkish factor. This is a three, let's say, at least a little bit, uh, the concrete examples that how it was seen in from Baku. So, like to sort of switch now to sort of thinking about the the future and particularly around a p- possible peace deal. I mean, there's been some talk that a peace deal could be reached by the end of the year between both sides. Um, what do you think of the prospects of of that, and you know, how likely is a is a peace agreement in the near future? Well, we see a lot of conversations about the peace deal. And in a way, uh, when people are discussing some problems between Armenia and Azerbaijan, this is kind of the main solution that they uh, reference. uh, so they say that if there is a peace deal, then we we will not see this, for example, border clashes. We will not see uh, a threat of the renewed fighting. Uh, there will be more prospects for uh, for peace uh, both between Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also potential for uh, of peaceful uh, future for those who live in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, this is all right, and we, I think this sounds really uh, very attractive, not only to those who are in foreign capitals, but first of all to those those who live in the region, uh, we got uh, already several generations who had to grow up uh, with with conflict. And uh, the longer it goes, uh, the more people really want to see the solution and uh, to stop worrying about their sons uh, who have to go and, and fight at some point. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there are the questions. Uh, 
what this peace deal uh, will look like. Uh, will it be just a short statement forced on the sides, but uh, a moment after that, they will turn uh, around and they will disagree <laughs> on several important points. Uh, and we saw this happening in the Armenian Azerbaijan context so many times. And not just um, in 2020, for example, there are quite a lot of discussions and debates around some parts of the ceasefire statement. But even before that, when uh, the OECD Minsk group proposed principles that became a basis for all the settlement formulas of um, around 15 years. So this is one thing that people are worried about. The other, um, there is so uh, much mistake mistrust. Uh, we have been having societies living apart uh, for a long time. And I remember some of my uh, Azerbaijani friends telling me after the 2020 war um, how shocked they were uh, with the behavior of uh, the young Azerbaijani soldiers during the war. And they, they were saying that this is probably because this was the first time they saw um, ethnic Armenians um, in the conflict zone. And, and that was indicating again that there is very little uh, interaction between the sides and, and therefore kind of, you know, there is, uh, in a way, de dehumanization. So would we expect with peace deal to settle, uh, with years of, uh, um, of, of with life apart when there is such a profound mistrust? When people look at each other and then for the first thing that they ask is an ethnicity and then the name, um, this will be something to take into account. And, and the third thing, um, this is something that, uh, quite heavily, um, questioned by, uh, the Armenian officials, for example, who I spoke to. In Yerevan, they are very much interested in, um, in seeing this peace deal, uh, being signed. Um, Armenia is very weak, uh, and Armenia is tired. Um, you can speak to the people and you can understand that uh, they really want to live a peaceful life and they want to, to see prospects for development. Um, so the Armenian officials are saying we are ready to go for a really profound compromise. Um, sometimes something that is not very well perceived and understood in Nagorno-Karabakh, I should say. Um, could you, could you talk to us a little bit about, um, how attitudes amongst ethnic Armenians living in Karabakh might differ from those in Armenia? Um, the views really differ and, uh, this is something that we had before the 2020 war, but especially after that war. Um, many in Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, they, uh, find it really, um, uh, very strange that, uh, those in Yerevan, they are speaking now about the peace deal without really articulating properly what will be the future with people, um, living in, in the entity surrounded by the Azerbaijani troops. Um, there is little understanding about, um, whether these people will be able to stay um, uh, there uh, or they will have to uh, leave and settle either in Armenia or in, in any other place. And I should say that they, those who are uh, in Stepanakert, uh, in, in the local leadership, they haven't properly defined even how to act. 
Um, you can see some people um, asking Russia for more protection. Um, on the other hand, you can see people speaking about some kamikaze tactics that we will fight till the end. Um, others are saying that um, we will have to find the solution. So it's um, this is something that where Nagorno-Karabakh finds itself very much alone, and I would say even abandoned, but not just by uh, Armenia, but uh, by the foreign world. Um, but if you allow me, I, I would just uh, want to finish why I, I was starting uh, speaking about Nagorno-Karabakh in Armenia. Um, the Armenian officials, they perfectly realize with threats and um, they they are very much worried about what will happen to the people um, in in the entity. Uh, they also understand that if some violence starts in Nagorno-Karabakh, it will be very difficult to continue um, talking about peace with Azerbaijan because they will have to react in some one way or another. But on the other hand, uh, they also are saying that the international institutions seem to be weak. Uh, we see quite a lot of conversations about always international norms are not working properly. And they are asking themselves if they, for example, uh, uh, sign with peace deal, no matter in what form, um, just kind of, you know, to see, seize the prospect of Azerbaijan taking more of Armenia's territory. Would it be working really? Would it stop uh, and prevent a new war? So this is, uh, this is something that, uh, that is also a consequence, uh, of the Ukraine crisis and, and, uh, what the world finds itself in. And Zawul, what does the peace deal look like from Baku? Is is there more hope there that a that agreement will be reached and reached uh, in the near future, one that can be sustainable? Yeah, uh, I think uh, first of all we can call agreement that is expected to be signed between Azerbaijan and Armenia a peace agreement or a framework agreement. But let's not forget that we are not talking about a comprehensive peace agreement. In particular, the issues currently on the agenda, transport, border limitation, will not be regulated by this agreement. Uh, so also we don't know whether the establishment of the diplomatic relations between Azerbaijan and Armenia will be included in this agreement. So I can say the two things about the conclusion of this, uh, the agreement by the end of this year. First of all, uh, this seems realistic if there will be a framework agreement. But for reaching a more comprehensive agreement, this time frame does not seem realistic. This seems more like an artificial deadline. Uh, the second thing is that, uh, as we both know, the European Union and uh, Russia currently have draft peace agreements, and there are significant differences between these two draft peace agreements. Although it's not expected that West and Russia will pursue common interests without competing with each other, but it's important that they support the signing of the peace agreement. But the, co- the question remains the how do we ensure this? So if Russia feels alienated from this process, it could it could hinder the process. This is how it's seen from Bako. The last point is that I think that both sides, the process are centralized and led by only a few actors, and which diminish the legitimacy of any possible peace deal. As the societies are losing their trust in negotiated agreements, it's particularly important now to have a tangible change, such as addressing the war crimes and human rights violations, and also uh, making this argument that, uh, as Olesha said, that uh, two people will believe that there will not be any new war, uh, there will not be any new ceasefire. So that's why uh, how to ensure that this is going to be a central question. And this can also, uh, let's say, uh, create a, a trust or not trust to this, uh, any possible peace deal between Azerbaijan and Armenia. 
Alyssa Zauer, I think uh, we have to close on uh, that uh, cautiously, uh, neither optimistic nor pessimistic, but uh, realistic uh, note. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I, listeners, um, I hope you found this as elucidating as we did. Thanks for having me. Thank you. To read more of Crisis Group's work on Armenia and Azerbaijan, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can follow Alessia and Zaur on Twitter. Alessia is at Alessia underscore Viart, and Zaur is at Zaur Shiriev. We would also like to encourage you to follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Alyssa is at Alyssa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Oliker. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwab. But our biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We are looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks, but until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time.